about his house. I said, it's a very, very fine house, and it's in the middle of his street. So it's good to know we're all on the same page here. Who's all? You're all. I'm I'm not on that page. I'm off that page. Yeah, this is going to be another not very snarky comedy episode. All right. I'm ready. All right. What's up, horror fans? You're listening to Progressively Horrified, a.k.a. a horror movie book club. That's what I'm renaming it. So suck it, you I feel like that's true to the spirit of the environment (laughs) we aim to foster on this show. (laughs) Something where you can just, you know, pour yourself a nice big glass of Prosecco and gab with the gals about your latest movie. As long as those movies involve horrible impalings and eating people and whatnot. Oh, yeah. All right, Jare Bear, get us started. Let's go. Okay. Let's do it, Jare Bear. (laughs) With a different energy for this one. Good evening and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the show where we hold horror to standards it absolutely never agreed to. Good evening, and welcome to Progressively Horrified, the podcast where we hold horror to progressive standards it never agreed to. Tonight, we're talking about the extremely affecting British immigrant horror drama, His House. I'm your host, Jeremy Whitley, and with me tonight, I have a panel of cinephiles and xenobites. First, they're here to challenge the sexy werewolf, sexy vampire binary, my co-host, Ben Kahn. Ben, how are you tonight? I hope y'all are ready for an emotional story about... uh... The questions of immigration and assimilation that we will draw upon personal histories for emotional discussion. Yeah, this one's going to be a stitch. Yeah, this one's going to be real heavy. California had weather tonight, so Emily's not able to join us. But we do have a special guest, editor, educator, and PhD student coming to you from about 20 feet away from me. It's Alicia Whitley. Alicia, welcome. Thank you. Am I supposed to say more? I don't. You don't. Yeah, no, that's good. Okay, good. We watched a movie and it was heavy as fuck. And you know what else? I just want to say about this movie that we watched that was really heavy. So Jeremy was like, hey, watch this movie with me. And he knows that my number one, no, I will not do in movie is child endangerment. And what is the first thing that I see? Child endangerment. Yeah. I mean, mean, to be fair. I watched like the first five minutes of this movie and it was apparent to me that the child was already dead. So it wasn't going to be Exactly. A that was the excuse for, well, I didn't think it would matter because the kid was already dead. Oh, and so I we're like, going with the ginger snaps excuse for why it's okay to have like a dozen dead dogs. Just right. Because they're already dead. So you don't have to alive. see it. And I'm like, oh, no, the, the child has been endangered. But I was like, I persevered. I was like, I'm going to push through. Because the the worst has already happened. Oh, that way you fucked up flashback. Exactly. That was the time when he got up and said, I'll just go ahead and get the divorce papers ready. (laughs) Yeah, uh, this this is a heavy one and sometimes heavy in unexpected places. It is, I want to say off the top, an incredible movie. It's very good. You know, as far as we're concerned in the U.S., it's a Netflix original. It's a BBC production. And it's uh, very good. It's got a Doctor Who in it, but, you know, not in, like, a fun way. Yeah, fucking Matt Smith. Is it just me, or is Matt Smith popping up everywhere? Everywhere I fucking turn, it's Matt Smith. Matt Smith wants us to know that 
Matt Smith is a fantastic actor. Don't get it twisted and just think that he's just doing the Doctor Who. We fish saw him a few months ago in Last thing. Night in Soho. He was and he's light, the he was Targaryen in Morbius. He was a Targaryen, he's right? He's a Targaryen. He's he, Prince Philip. He is in just the bringing I all the drama it. in Bravo reality show House of the Dragon. Killed it as Prince Philip. In Fucking, the crown. That's right. He was in the crown. He killed it as Prince Philip, just like Time role. did. Yeah, my, Matt Smith is like, seriously, don't sleep on me. I may not have eyebrows, but do not Jeremy sleep on me. Jeremy's to get that one, but it got there. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> he lived to be 99. There's And there's a fucking royal. Nothing I can say that can hurt him. And he would probably agree with you. You can always insult the British monarchy. It's the definition of punching up. Yeah, but you can't insult Meghan Markle. No, absolutely not. If you were thinking about doing that, All we're of not. No, not on this show. Collectively trying to do that. So mean things about Meghan Markle or Harry. That those are fucking fighting words on this show. Speaking of people who don't like Meghan Markle, I made the mistake of I was listening to a podcast called Maintenance Phase, and they were talking about what a jerk Piers Morgan is, and I was like, Yeah, Piers Morgan's a jerk. And they were talking about specifically how obsessed he is with like anti-fatness. And I made the mistake of deciding to look up an interview where Piers Morgan did with a fat model. And I hate him all over again. Yeah, because I'm yes. sure fucking Piers Morgan is just fucking like chiseled abs and like huge pecs. I'm sure that's a guy just keeping, The model points this out. Tight. She was like, I'm not going to pretend that I'm super healthy, but also who are you to sit here and say anything about it? And he was like, well, I'm not as fat as you are. That was his basic defense. And he was like, don't get defensive about it. And they were like, she said you were fat and you like literally lost your mind, Piers Morgan. Anyway, yeah, that's fuck, not over here. Piers Morgan, about. one of the possibly the last British man who makes who can make Americans go, oh yeah, I remember why we fought in the war to not be you. Yeah, yeah. We fucking love anyway. British shit. It it takes so much to reawaken those ancient like, oh, we'll fucking fight a motherfucker. Yeah, I'm definitely an Anglophile, but... But not Piers Piers Morgan. Morgan. Fuck that. Not Piers Morgan. No. Anyway. Anyway. Harry's ours. He's in the Pantheon with John Oliver. He's ours now. We're not giving him back. Who, John Oliver? Of course not. Both both of them princes of America. Ben did a short straw on trying to recap this movie tonight. So uh, take it away, Ben. This one's going to be a pretty short one just because, again... Uh, just a pretty fucking dramatic, serious movie with not a lot of like, oh, why'd they do that? Fucking, that was a weird decision. So we're just going to kind of, uh, you know, give you the plot and then we will dive into what should be a very, uh, heavy discussion on a pretty heavy movie. Yeah. All right. So his house focuses on Ball and Rial, a couple that has fled South Sudan and sought refugee status in Britain. They lost their daughter, Nyagak, on the boat crossing the English Channel. After three months in detention, they're granted asylum, and Matt Smith brings them to their new house, a not-very-nice house in a bad neighborhood that Matt Smith just does his very best to put a good spin on. It's not very nice, but there's so much of it. Like, they keep repeating that, like, it's bigger than my house. It's a big, horrible house. It's a terrible house where they keep acting like the bigness of the terrible house mitigates the terribleness. Also, I don't doubt that Matt Smith lives in a shitty apartment like somewhere in London. Like, look, look, the London housing market, that's a whole other theme. Especially because they're a family of two people. So, great. 
It's a big yeah, house. This is the Amityville Row house. Like it's just big and spooky. Oh, well, it's so big. I, I like he can have his home office and she can have the art room on their 74 pounds a week that they're not allowed to supplement in any way. Which I kept waiting for that to be a plot point just because they're constantly showing Ball buying things. And at first I kept trying to like add it up in my head how much he was spending it with this. But then it turned out to not actually matter to the plot at all. Yeah, there's a whole other horror movie within this horror movie about how awful it is to be a refugee and all the like restrictions and everything that are put on them that almost doesn't yeah, matter like just... until like the end of the movie when they're like, hey, if you guys continue to just fuck up your entire house, you are going to be sent back. And also, there's not really good electricity here, but you can't start fires or cook. There is a whole movie that is just straight up psychological horror that has nothing supernatural beyond just trying to navigate a refugee, like an asylum application process. Like that could have been a whole horror movie all on its own. And that's where I thought this was going in the early going, but it it did not. It went a very different direction. You got to admit, this movie, it really is something if you just watch the Matt Smith scenes where it's like, okay, here's a couple, got to work. Oh, and now he's back lying to me about rats, breaking glasses. Apparently there's a witch. The house is now being destroyed. Two days later, everything is fine and they killed the witch. Okay, fine. I'm not putting any of that in a report. <laughs> not dealing with any of this paperwork. Just going to take the box and say, they're fine. <laughs> Like, this is just a real topsy-turvy week for Matt Smith, who looks like he is the protagonist in a whole other movie where the theme is still man's life falls apart around him. <laughs> That's absolutely. I kept looking at it from his point of, like, anyway, I'll let you get on yeah, the like, recap. <laughs> Matt Smith is in a whole other movie charting his own mental decline and, like, psychological episode. And this is just an aspect of like, here's a quirky character that keeps showing up at work for a few scenes. Yeah, he's oh. like, he, he looks like his wife has left him and his mistress has stolen all of his stuff. And like, this, this, <laughs> every time we see him, he's in worse condition. Like he starts off fairly well shaved, kind of weird, awkward Matt Smith, but that's about it. And by the end of the movie, you know, he, he looks like he's just been through it. And he's just like, Guys, could you please just, like, not destroy the entire house and, like, maybe lie enough that you don't get sent back because I'd feel really bad about that. <laughs> Matt Smith, in his journey, is at the life-falling-apart montage that comes at the end of Act 1. That's where we catch Matt Smith in this movie. Like, he's awful and definitely, like, xenophobic and classic and all the ists, but his main overriding thing is he seems very, very tired at his job and just doesn't want there to be any problems. Like, he doesn't want to deal with anything that he doesn't have to deal with. He does ultimately seem to care about them, but, like, he, he doesn't really know how to. He doesn't know how no. to address things. No. So, anyway, Ball and Riel deal with life in London and take different attitudes towards dealing with the xenophobia and racism they face. Ball wants to assimilate to British culture as much as possible. He learns football chants and dresses like a white person. He only wants to speak English at home and use a fork and knife at a table. 
And there's a great scene where Rial says that she can only taste the metal of the fork, which just made me realize how much I take for granted that I'm putting metal in my mouth with like every bite of a meal and don't even yeah. think about <laughs> it. And, you know, just one of those makes you think moments. Also made me want some of that food because it looked good what they had. Yeah, so Wall Ball uh, very much seeks to assimilate. Rial is more apprehensive about going out and she sticks to the customs and possessions she took from Sudan, and, you know, sticks to her manner of dress uh, and really only goes out to visit the doctors. And has a terrible um, time at that. She gets lost in all the like backyards and gardens of this apartment complex in London and can't seem to get to the street she wants to get to and then well, some you know shitty teenagers be shitty there she meets some shitty teenagers uh who are real real xenophobic towards her and then and this was one of probably one of the biggest like fake outs of the movie is they give her directions but in a delivery that feels very fake and they even like have to like urge each other on to like stick to the story and they change their minds and be like oh oh yeah yeah no that is where the doctor's appointment is and then it smash cuts to the doctor's office he does get there yeah like i was not expect. like they, it really sets it up like oh she's being set up and she's gonna go and now it's like just something awful about life in london is gonna just like hit her in the face and instead i guess these weird sketchy teens actually gave surprisingly helpful directions anywho Teens aside, the, all the while, they're both experiencing strange vision, visions of phantoms and of Nyagak and a mysterious man who hides in the walls. Ball is freaked the fuck out because, of course, and goes all hammer happy on the house. But Rial is disturbingly chill about the whole ghost thing and even treats ghosts like a friend and has tea with them. Rial figures out that it's an apeth, a night witch. She tells Ball the story of a man in her village who stole from an apath and got cursed by him. Uh, Rial says if they repay their debt, Nyagak will come back to them, but it's left vague as to what they stole. Ball thinks the apath will leave them alone if they burn everything they brought with them, but all he really burns is the health of his marriage. Things go really downhill for Ball after this. He freaks out and breaks a glass in his hands trying to get a new home for Matt Smith. He tears the house apart looking for ghosts, and he locks Rial in the house when she says she wants to go back to South Sudan, just some real bad dude energy and just being a real danger to himself and everyone around him. Can I just add that uh, after she told the story of the epith, he said that he was thinking about how they could start a family. And like she was talking about their missing daughter, you know, at that point. And then he's talking about, I thought maybe we could start a family. And that just seemed really callous and cruel, you know, while she's mourning the loss of her child, still wearing this child's right. necklace. Right. Yeah. Right. But like, I was I was really like ready to hate him for forever. For I that. mean, I'm not sure that hating him forever is the wrong attitude towards this character. I think it could be, definitely be argued that he deserves to be hated forever. But that, uh, right, yeah, well, uh, we'll get to that spoiler in right now. <laughs> so uh ball summons the ape himself and the night witch tells him that he'll bring his daughter back to life if ball gives the ape his body ball refusing the ape can't hurt him but the night witch does make him piss his pants so point ape 
Riel escapes the house, but ends in up in a vision of a classroom in South Sudan. Uh, and she sees all her old friends who we learned were killed in a massacre that she escaped by hiding. And we get the big twist of the movie, which is that Nyagak wasn't Paul and Riel's daughter. She was a child they stole during the chaos of trying to get on a bus so they could uh, escape South Sudan. Yeah, it's it's definitely wrong, but also like the intensity of the situation, like you kind of get what Ball is, like where he's coming from in that moment, because like Rial gets on the bus and then they're like, oh, no, there's no more room. We can just take kids. And uh, he's like, oh, I got to get on there. And he's, she's like, no, just kids. And there's this little girl next to him who doesn't seem to have anybody with her. And he's like, she's a kid. This is my daughter. We got to get on here. And just like grabs her it did seem like she was alone like in that it flashback does, until the mom starts banging on the door of the bus yes and like at which yes. point he doesn't say anything yes, would, and yeah. that's the really yeah and the also banging on the side of the bus and screaming for her daughter and the daughter is crying and screaming and he doesn't say anything and real kind of sits there and looks at him and doesn't say anything and it's it's super fucked just, up. oh it's so, so fucked up because the whole movie, you're going like, because what could Ball have stolen that could have warranted this? And you're like, he stole a kid. And it's like, oh, my God. And he stole a kid. And then baby got killed going overboard. Yes. You stole somebody's child and then did not even. Well, yeah. Care. So, like, I mean, what happens is the when they're going over the, the channel, the boat jumps and Rial and the girl fall off the back. And he grabs Rial and seems to be unsure whether he can get the girl as well, so pulls her back. She, meanwhile, is screaming to go get uh, Nyagek, the girl, and like he, he pulls her away anyway onto the boat, and they leave the little girl out there in the middle of the sea, which is why they're haunted. I have told this to Jeremy multiple times, and I know that he knows it, but if it is ever a choice between me and my child, and you choose me, you're going to die. Like... That was the wrong choice. You shouldn't have chosen me. Okay, but what if it's the choice <laughs> between you and a random 10-year-old you just kind of grabbed to get a seat on a train? Right, which, again, like, you grab a random 10-year-old to get a seat on a train next to me, and her mama is screaming out the... I'm not sitting there. I'm not sitting it's there. It's so fucked up. It's such a fucked it's up so fu- there, And, like, and so I understand, like, up in, like at that point, she feels like she has taken this child on, and it almost seems like she has convinced herself no, it, that that is her she daughter. She has. She, like, this is like she has absolutely blocked out the fact that they have stolen this child. Because even in her dream, you know? she's like, Where's my daughter? And they have to be like, You don't fucking yeah. have a daughter. Yeah. The other We're women are like, ghosts, uh-uh, girl. And We have to tell oh, no, you baby. the twist. That is the one bit of movie where like the movie really relies on. Rial having repressed her own memories into believing, yeah, that so like she at had that a daughter, point, you know. So at that point, she's still in I'm a mom mode, and I will one thousand, hundred thousand percent say if you save your life or my life and not my child's life, it's over for you. I'm coming for you. I'm going to haunt you for the rest of your natural life and I will haunt your descendants as well until I have retribution. Now, what I couldn't figure out is what was in it for the Apeth. Who he is this punishing like, figure? I mean, I got that he wanted Maul's body because 
I don't know. He wanted to watch football games and dress in fucking slacks. He just wanted a polo. <laughs> Maybe some tape. He just wanted a little, a little melanin. He just needed a little because this apeth was oh very ashy, very ashy, very, very ashy waxy, ghost. and I don't, I don't. It was just flesh looked like it was just hanging off of him. Yeah, I don't even. Ghosts in this are amazing. Like this, yeah. Yeah, this apeth is spooky, and and like the way that he attempts to take over Ball's body by like literally sticking his hand through the cut in his arm. Oh yeah, and like Ooh. trying. Ooh. To take is this over another his... movie in which a white guy is trying to wear black people like a puppet? I mean, he's he can't possibly be a white guy. He's just he's just a really ashy ghost. <laughs> okay. Yeah. All right. Moving along. So yeah. what happens next? So <laughs> feeling remorse for the whole stealing a child and letting her die thing, Ball decides to pay his debt to the Aveth and bring Yagak back by slicing his arm. And the Night Witch starts taking over Ball's body by just fucking sticking his hand in the wound, and it's, it looks so fucking painful and awful, and ooh, heebie-jeebies. But Rial decides to save Ball instead of resurrecting her not-daughter and kills the Aveth. I'm like later, Matt Smith comes by to inspect the house, and Ball and Rail have it totally fixed up. And, you know, Mostly Matt Smith up. asked about the witch, and they're just like, Rial killed him. No worries, bro. Go be Dr. Hill, or spend last night's in Soho. And then we end with the image of Ball and Rial together, holding hands, saying they've decided to stay, that this is their home, and they will live with the ghosts of their past. And the literally just surrounded by ghosts. as we just just so oh just so many fucking ghosts. But these ghosts at the end, so the ghosts that he was that Ball was seeing were drowned. They were disgusting. They had on masks to indicate that they were like part of the spirit world. They were peeking out through the walls, and they were incredibly disturbing and incredibly scary. And when they accepted what had happened, and they decided to live with their ghosts. The ghosts all appear as they're not frightening yeah, anymore. They look like they're friends. They're just there. Yes. Yeah. The the ghost that's they don't look they like... identify as Nyagyak several times is incredibly creepy. She's got a you know oh, little so mask. Creepy. She jumps around and tries to stab him a few times. She's wild. Like, oh the scene where just all the ghosts are grabbing at ball. So Nyaga can just have like an unobstructed view to slitting his throat and he's just reaching for the light switch. Like, oh, that was fucking tense. This movie has some real Which I didn't I didn't know what that light switch was gonna do because the girl already turned on the lights one time. I mean he turned off the lights to see the ghosts and then turned them back on because he was scared. And then the ghost looked at him, like stood in the light, and looked at him and turned the light back off. Oh, like, I love that. That was such uh, a no. great moment. That was <laughs> again. Um, but I thought it was interesting the moment where he said, "You can't touch me. That's why you need me to do this." You can't because those ghosts seemed like they were going to do a really good job of do of touching him. Mm-hmm. Like those ghosts seemed mm-hmm. like they had no fucking problem. I mean, but they right. they don't really. I mean they they spend a lot of time getting very close to hurting him and spooking him and making his life generally difficult to live. But ultimately, like they can't. Don't seem to be able to do anything to him except show him visions, and he's like, "You can't hurt me with pictures." And then it, you know, makes him feel like he's out in the middle of the ocean again, surrounded by dead bodies, and he pisses his pants. Was a real bitch, you thought? Moment. You know what that reminded me of? 
in speaking of guilt and sin and ghosts, it reminded me of Lady Macbeth. So um, if you're not familiar with Macbeth, Macbeth is supposed to be the king and his wife convinces him to kill the king. And then he goes on a murder spree. He just like Walter White's it down a rabbit um, of murder. But at the beginning of the play, she tells him to go in there and plant the evidence. And he says, I can't go back in there and plant the evidence because the king, you know, he he's all dead and he's staring at me. And she said, the sleeping and the dead are but as painted pictures. Like, what are you, what are you even talking about? Okay, he's dead. It's just like a painting. Calm down. The painting can't get you. And then by the end, she is completely racked with guilt. She is you know, scrubbing and scrubbing at her hands because she can't wash the blood off of her hands um, from all this guilt. I mean, it did seem like to be a very interesting message of the movie to be like, you just have to accept your guilt. Mm. And honestly, that was the part where I turned towards this character. So the entire time I was like, you stole a baby and then you lost that baby. And like, I can understand in the situation, like he was doing everything he could to save himself. And he wasn't even thinking coherently, like he wasn't doing things with intent. He was desperate and he was trying to save himself and he was trying to save Rial, right? And so that's it's like, the thing, like, I get I, it. You picked up this kid. I can get picking up the kid and getting on the bus, but God, when right. the mom is banging on the window. Yeah. And, the- and he's like, I can't say anything or else we're, you know. You know, he's like, just shit, it's, it's going to all be over. It's going to all be over. Because he's thinking that mom's going to be dead soon anyway, right? Like, they stopped, the the guns were right behind them, right? So they stopped the truck. What, what are they going to do? Stop the bus to put the mom on there? And then they're all going to be dead. So, like, I can kind of see his reasoning and his validation for what he did. But it wasn't until he was able to say, I did do these bad things. I am a bad person that I was like, okay, now we can begin to move on. Yeah. Well, I mean, it definitely does change the movie a little bit or makes me rethink like, you know, Paul and Rial's relationship. Cause you know, at first I was watching it through the lens of, Oh, these are two people who are grieving the loss of a child in different ways. That isn't what the other needs. But then I look at it from a boss perspective. Now it's, Every time Rial mentions our daughter who we lost, he must have been looking at where it's like, okay, but she wasn't like it, it was traumatic. I'm having nightmares about it every night. But yeah, uh, like when he says she so con- his she- comment about I was thinking you and I could start a family and her looking at him like, what is your problem? And him looking at her like, yeah, wouldn't that be great? You know, like he's trying to deal with what happened by embracing by throwing himself into this new life and embracing this new life. She is refusing to let go of the past. And it turns out that there needs to be a balance between those two things. They do need to hold on to those ghosts. They do need to be grounded in their history while accepting what happened so that they can move forward. I mean, that aspect, I think, will be very relatable. Anyone who is an immigrant or is the child of immigrants or comes from like a family turned by you know, heavy immigration because, look, I sure as hell do not have any ancestors from South Sudan. I don't have any relatives who lived in live in England. But this question of 
you know, assimilation versus hanging on to native customs and culture is a very fundamental one Getting to any anyone who's, you know, immigrated or has experience with as a family of immigrants. That is a question and a balance that every family has had to find for itself. It's one I know for a fact, like as American Jews, my family has had to deal with. And I know it's something that my family has, for the most part, come on the side of assimilation. Like last names have been changed uh, to be less overtly Jewish, you know, really like doing our best to adopt just like practices and customs to a large degree. I mean, uh, my mother is uh, the daughter of Israeli immigrants. They did not celebrate Hanukkah growing up. That was how like hard they tried to assimilate. And it wasn't until, you know, she grew up and as an adult and the next generation that trying to bring some balance back, you know, raised me not celebrating Christmas, but celebrating Hanukkah and Jewish holidays instead. So this question of assimilation versus, you know, holding on to the past and the extremes and trying to find the balance between them, that is something so real and something so many families will wrestle with, like for generations. Jeremy, that was the case with your family, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, my you know grandparents are immigrants, and you know they they left England post World War II and and moved here, and they all sort of split up and drifted around the country, you know, and and did their best to sort of become American, other than you know short of short of the accents, really. I was thinking of well, your my, grandfather. I I was actually thinking in the case of uh, my mother's parents, Roy and Janice. It it's actually kind of similar to this and that you know he sort of rushed out there and was you know trying to do whatever to you know make money and be part of this world and everything and she was very much a stay-at-home traditions person she didn't really go anywhere the entire time that I, I knew her she was at home most of the time she cooked and cleaned and did her best to find all the British stuff around that she could but yeah I mean my you know, my, my grandfather on the other side is a Mexican immigrant and he ended up in the Navy because, you know, it was he was given the choice of either going to the Navy or going to Juvie. And so, you know, it's sort of integrated that way. I think a way that a lot of folks who've immigrated from Mexico and South America end up doing, joining the army or some armed services. Oh, yeah. The promise of assimilation and social mobility in exchange for military services. A whole other fucking college discussion, college level discussion. I was going to say, but your family didn't speak Spanish. Like, I mean, like, it seems like, yeah, I mean, it's his whole life. He, he very rarely spoke Spanish once during moved here and also insisted that he didn't speak Spanish. He spoke Mexican, uh, which was a whole other thing. Anytime any of my cousins tried to, you know, learn Spanish in school and decided to try and speak Spanish to him. He would tell him to get that shit out of here. He didn't speak any Spanish. He spoke Mexican. Yeah, but I mean, I'm just saying like he did. It didn't seem like it was a really big priority to him to maintain any non-American customs. Yeah, I mean, it was this, you know, cultural stuff he held on to, but not. Yeah, not with any like aggression, stubbornness. It's very <laughs> it's interesting that, you know, picking my words carefully and it definitely feels like a choice. And it's interesting that. 
the most overt xenophobia that Real encounters is uh, from uh, Black Britain, te Black British teenagers. And it kind of feels like in a way by making that choice, she's almost being confronted with her greatest fear slash ball's greatest hope is that anything they like do create is just becomes like so divorced, so separated from the culture that Rial came from and is clearly still holding on to and treasuring that they are actively hateful against it. You know, these characters, these teenagers who are delivering this racist abuse on someone who probably has an accent pretty similar to their mother or grandmother. And I mean, hell, you see it all the time that, that part of the cycle of assimilation is you get to a point where you're assimilated, where you can now start being the one punching downwards at the people who haven't. And I don't know, it's just very interesting to see them as this potential manifestation of kind of what ball hopes for them to become. I had a note about that, about how my heart just, it absolutely broke when she went to these young boys for help and they mocked her, you know, they told her to speak English. Um, and it was just a reminder that, you know, just because people are skin folk don't mean that they're kin folk. And one of the other things I was thinking about, and I think I think about this often, is about the ways in which, you know, in America, and I recognize that this is taking place in England, and so it might be different. You know, obviously, like, I think the history of British colonialism in Sudan and, like, the divide and rule policy that they had in Sudan, and then her coming back and Bull keeps telling her to speak in English, and she said that she's going to speak her mother tongue, right? She's going to use her mother tongue. Because she had something to say and she needed to say it like, you know, with yeah, emphasis. Like she didn't that, have time to waste speaking of English. That's when the connection between the two really hit me is this whole like, is these kids being English, like speak English. And then Ball being like, let's speak English too. Just made me. Right. That's you when know, it, he's doing it. That's too. when the connection between them like, kind of was like, yeah. oh, oh, fuck. And, and it absolutely made me think of like in America, you know, one of the figures that we love to <laughs> Santa Clausify, you know, we talked about the Santa Clausification of Martin Luther King, but we also like to Santa Clausify Harriet, Harriet Tubman. And what did Harriet Tubman do? You know, Harriet Tubman led refugees from violence to another country to become immigrants to that other country, right? And she did so while wielding a gun and threatening to shoot anybody who was going to thwart those efforts. So we're like, Harriet Tubman is like this hero, right? There's like this big push to put her on the money, put her on stamps. She's such a hero. But at the same time, some of my skin folk have disdain for refugees from other countries or refugees who are also fleeing violence. And it's it's just the irony of that holding those two thoughts in your head at the same time, that the Underground Railroad was heroic and it was good that people were fleeing north to Canada to flee this violence or fleeing south to Mexico to flee racial violence. But at the same time, in today's time, we want to close borders. We want to limit immigration. And it it bothers me. It's, people are and dumb. Like, and they're bad at... Yeah, and I mean, just seeing that reflected in those teenagers, like, for asshole teens, you know, they say stuff, they do stuff, but, like, it was absolutely heartbreaking. It's all people and love something that I recognized and just... I think earlier you said it felt so real, and that was something that felt so real. The actress who plays Rial, 
Wunmi. Uh, Wunmi Masaku. Wunmi Masaku. Thank you, Wunmi Masaku. Her so eyes good. are so incredibly expressive, but her body, like her physical body, is so different than the white English people that they had in here. She's very tall. She's very thick. And just she physically looked otherized in this world. And then when they do the flashback where she's sitting with her friends in the school and they're just sitting with her and like gently stroking her hands and her legs. And it was emotional she's for fantastic. me. And oh, <laughs> those are not my people, but like, I just, you know, I don't know. Well, just it was... that feeling of connection and home and being in a place mm -hmm. after a whole movie of so clearly being in a place that she doesn't feel as home. I mean, just almost like this tragic catharsis of it is hard not to get and swept away. And to see them massacred. Oh. To see them massacred right after that. And, and you're so right about her eyes. Like, you have a whole emotional journey with just, like, her facial. Like, yes. Just her eyes. And, yes. Uh, for and those of oh, you her eyes. Like, I just, I can't get over all the work that she did. And she doesn't speak that much. Like, in the doctor's office, you know, the... The doctor or the nurse uh, who was like taking her blood pressure is trying to like kind of make small talk and, you know, just, you know, get to know her a little bit. And she's like, oh, what a pretty necklace. I just, ugh, I can't, I, I'm out of words. I have no yeah. words to describe. Both of the leads in this movie are, are so incredible. Uh, Wunmi Misaku, I think the main thing I have seen her in other than this is Loki. Yes, she's a you, very yes, you at home different probably character. recognize her as Hunter. Wait, Hunter she's in Loki. She's Hunter B fifteen in Loki. Oh, I love her so much in Loki. Yes, and she's also great in that. She was also in yes. one of the series of Luther. Yeah. If you're a Luther fan out there, for all you Idris Elba completion, that's the one where, that's the one where Idris goes Zawai. Yeah, Zawai. Yes. all the time. Yes. Is that that one? Yep, that's the one. She, she's also in Lovecraft Country, which I don't think you ended up watching in the Evolution, but I've watched a few episodes of. She's great. Sope uh, Dirsu, I haven't, uh, hasn't been as much. It seems like his biggest credit has been in Gangs of London, a British crime drama show. But yeah, he is also is very, very good. They are both really fucking good in this movie. Yes. Oh, and the scene where he's talking to Matt Smith, this is where I was like, if this movie were from Matt Smith's perspective, like, I don't know what I would even do if I were Matt Smith, because the scene where he's talking to Matt Smith and he's like, yes, uh, we have rats. Yes, they're vermin. Yeah, bugs, rats. We got to move. We got to get out. And the smile that he has, like the forced, I'm going to smile and I'm going to say whatever it takes to convince this man to move me. And where he's just looking like, really on the brink, you know, of a break. And oh, yeah. he Matt crushes Smith's reaction the glass is... in his hands. Oh, and Matt Smith's reaction is real like, fucking, I got rats. I love a new house too. And he was like, my guy, you have got to adapt. And he was like, oh, adapt. Um, <laughs> like, he's like, you, I can't, I, I cannot just like overlook this. Like and, he, and then I love him being from like, Matt Smith's perspective. This looks real dangerous. Like from Matt Smith's perspective, like from Matt Smith's perspective, someone who looks afflicted with Joker toxin has come in, just 
gone back and forth on whether or not there are giant rats that are or are not a problem, then broken a glass in his hand and stormed out. And then when you go to check, there are hammer holes all over the house. All the wallpaper has been stripped out. And the wife tells you that there is a witch living with them who has cursed them. She's like, oh, there's a witch. Yeah. And and he's like, you look bad and you smell bad, my guy. Like, which is a fucking hell of a thing to tell somebody, right? Like, you, he must have really smelled bad for someone to just straight up say, like, you're not doing okay. Like, I can see that you're not doing okay. Yeah, it was. There was a bit of concern there. It, it wasn't a full parasite, but yeah, no. no from Matt Smith's perspective, he's going around being like, okay, there's a witch in the house. I don't know what form that is. I don't right, know like, what I don't even know what to, to do with this. for witch in that for like there's a for witches. Yeah, it's it's rough for him because I, his reaction to a lot of the stuff, which is is ultimately unhelpful to the other characters, is like, hey, if I tell anybody who can help you any of this stuff, they're just gonna send you back to the country you came from. Like they're gonna be like, these people are clearly crazy. We cannot continue to have them here and send you away and and. He's he's just like, look, man, I, I want to help you, but there's like, give me something to I can his work credit, with. He didn't say, oh, there's no witch. <laughs> he didn't say, ah, you're you're what? You're crazy. He was just like, mm, I. He does legitimately seem like he is trying his best, knowing that he is part of a system that is designed to just fuck them over at every turn. Yes. Yeah. He. I don't know. It, it's it's interesting to me because i mean he it's hard to get a read on him throughout he seems like he's really trying and you know when the other two people come to sort of index all the stuff that's wrong with the house he's sort of hanging back and and talking to them and and he has this moment like in the last scene there where he's like so uh what happened to the witch the witch still here and you know he's almost jokingly and ball is like oh no she killed him he's dead no not a problem (laughs) <laughs> and, and he does not see he know laughs what to make of that he's like oh, okay like, right. like, good to know again i think he's just happy that he's like oh okay sounds like a problem that solved itself yeah but i guess like, i don't have to like, deal with a witch anymore that was been yeah. on my to-do list all week <laughs> <laughs> yeah i really i really understood his character there like i don't really know what to do about this oh my god just mad smith being like both overwhelmed and not wanting to deal with it is a very relatable. Like, again, he talked about like, yeah, I used to work at a bank. Life ain't working out the way any of us. I know the vacant stare. I'm like, I need (laughs) to know everything about Matt Smith's character in this movie. I wanted to know about the upstairs neighbor. Yeah. I thought she was going to be a bigger part. Like she just kind of came out and was like, Hey, how would you like a little racism in your coffee? Yeah, just a little. This, this like, we haven't had enough racism. racism. We're just going to sprinkle a little more racism. Okay, I'm out of the movie now. Bye. This movie is chock full of red herrings. Like, they are real things and real racism that would exist in this situation. And frequently you think they're going to be something more. And it's like, oh, no, they're just they're just there for the, you know, general sense of horrible ambiance. <laughs> like when she is trying to get to the doctor's office and she is wandering through these back streets, she sees a lot of white folks who just like give her death stares and she does not engage. She just keeps her head down and keeps going. And like when she finally sees these black teenagers, this seems to be like the opportunity where she's like, 
oh, them I can talk to. Like, that'll be okay. They might be able to help it, me. It, and, you know, it just turns out to be just it's bad such thing. a real, like you said, Alicia, uh, skin folk ain't kin folk. Mm-hmm. And again, that is so, it does make it a little heartbreaking that she is just getting the most full throated abuse from these people who, like, you could, the role is palpable it... only for it to just be like, as soon as she lets her guard down, for it to just be like, get the worst of it. And it honestly, like, you know, it's sometimes, I suppose people feel like, you know, they get racism and they get guff from like the people, you know, I'm trying to think of the best way to say this. Culturally downstream? Exactly. Like, I mean, like, it's like these black teens are going to be looked down upon by, you know, white English people. They're going to be looked at, at like, you're the immigrant, you're the foreigner, you have the weird accent, you don't talk right. And so instead of turning around to somebody else who, you know, fits that, they just turn around and give that same abuse to that other person. It, it kind of reminded me of, and I know why the cage bird sing Maya Angelou talks about how they moved into a space that was vacated during World War II by Japanese people who were forcibly removed to internment camps. And their families moved in and took over these businesses. And she was like, we probably should have been more concerned about what happened to the people who were here before us. But we were busy like, okay, well, now it's our turn to like have an opportunity, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's like people who have been oppressed don't turn around and assist those who are also in their same position. Instead, they take that opportunity to kind of like assimilate whiteness themselves and to adopt whiteness themselves. Like I'm different and I'm other, but at least I'm not like that. And it's a frustrating thing I mean, for me it used to, to witness. Be a, a joke we used to tell in high school when I was in high school, I remember is uh nothing represents the American dream more than going from Irish need not apply to Bill O'Reilly complaining about immigrants within three generations. Absolutely. And then using that that well, I my people were discriminated against badge of honor to say, Oh, and like well, my people were discriminated against too, but my people are different because your people did, you know. And I don't know how and again, this is a British movie, and I don't know if this is more of a specific American phenomenon, but the way conditional whiteness is mm. used as a way to perpetuate anti-blackness and keep marginalized mm. groups like pitted against each other. This idea that like if you just Yeah, I think that's just, the term that I was looking for was like conditional whiteness. Yeah, like if you just like if you just hate the right group, you can be that much closer to being in the club. I mean, um yeah. there's on Hulu and stuff right now the show uh, Welcome to Chippendales, and a big theme of it is the racism that this Indian business owner encounters, but instead of making that it, that racism he encounters and making him any kind of more empathetic person. It just gives him ideas on how to perpetuate that racism. Oh. Yeah. Oh. I guess hurt people hurt people, right? It's a real hurt people hurt people. Yeah, 100%. Mm. Oh, that was just absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah, like, hey, hey, y'all listeners, we warned you this was going to be a pretty heavy one. 
Yeah, I think part of what makes this movie so heavy too is is the structure of it, which I think we've talked a little bit about. It deals mostly with stuff going on in England, with them having already left the Sudan and sailed across the sea. We get a little bit of a picture of of what happened that you know they lost their daughter at the beginning, but like we get a lot of them living and trying to get by with like them saying oh all the stuff we've been through do you really want to go back do you remember all the things we've dealt with do you remember where we've been and they save the actual facts and images of that till the end till like you know they're sort of trapped in this nightmare of like what actually happened to them that you you know see you know all of her her friends and family just get slaughtered in that schoolhouse and you see them you know hiding up on top of this house while these you know men are marauding down the street killing people and you you know see all these sort of narrow escapes that got them there there was a point in this movie where i was getting really like angry with the ghost that i was just like what the fuck did this guy do like punishing him for surviving like he's you know he's stolen a life well like you know he he fought to get here like that's not that's not stealing that's just surviving and then you know you get to this point where it's and like then... oh this is the horrible thing he did and you're like oh oh no that is horrible but then even then you're like i think i was i don't know i didn't i wasn't expecting him to have straight up stolen a kid if only because like rial's like fake memory uh red herring was enough to throw me off that particular scent but yeah no i had the same thought as you i'm like well, what could this guy possibly have fucking stolen from someone was it like he had to push someone out of the way to get like a spot on the boat like was that and like he stole the spot i wasn't expecting straight up steal a child which but yeah no it's like you're right he billy zaned yeah like it he did he fucking that he billy did a billy zane Zane. titanic this, Billy Zane. This is if Billy Zane was our protagonist. Like, Billy Zane well, I don't think he was as bad as Billy Zane. Huh? If it isn't Billy Zane the protagonist of Titanic? I'm remembering this. No, I'm saying this movie is if Billy Zane was the protagonist. No. I don't think he was as bad as Billy Zane. I mean, he actually really cared for Rial. And, yes. And... Look, the part, look, the part where he locked her in a house is real ugly. That part that don't look good. That was, that was real bad. Yeah, that, 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 that was, was real the bad. Real boy. One of the things that I also thought was interesting that this story made me think of is the fact that the ghosts needed to be remembered. There's an idea that people don't die until you forget them and pushing them out of mind or trying to put them out of mind was just another violent way of killing them. And his confronting what happened, his confronting the ghosts, their decision that we're going to live with the ghosts, but we're also going to move forward. Like that happened at the same time, right? She decides to move forward by killing the Apeth. He decides to confront the past by admitting to what he's done and and paying for what he's done. Um, It made me think about the story Beloved by Toni Morrison, which is my favorite book. So I will talk about it all the time. But Beloved is a ghost baby who is disremembered and unaccounted for. And she comes back to kind of haunt the living. And the nightmare that is this baby coming back is... Tony Morrison delivering that good Southern Gothic. That good, good Southern magical realism, Gothic, just 
all mixed up in there. It's so scary. And so you should read Beloved. Don't launch the movie <laughs> for this podcast. But just read if you haven't end, read any Tony Morrison, just read anything by Tony Morrison. Just read some Tony Morrison some Tony and Morrison. then read it again because I guarantee you missed something the first time you read it. Better yourself at the end, as a says, person by reading Tony Morrison. At the end, she says, This is not a story to pass on. And that is just an amazingly interesting phrase. Like it's not a story to pass on, like, and it's the story of this memory of slavery and and death and murder and and horrors and it's not something that you want to pass on like not something that you want to propagate or continue but it's also not a story that you want to pass on like you do need to confront that story you do need to know it you do need to see it and rememory it um in order that it doesn't happen again and also it's not a story to allow to pass on like if you ignore it these people will die you know, and this is not a story that will just die. It will not just pass on. It's going to stay with us. So I kept thinking of that as the little girl comes back to her and holds her hand, not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. The little girl comes back and all of the families, all of the families there, the house is just packed. I, I really enjoyed how a big part of Ball's efforts to assimilate was learning football chants. Oh, that was fun. If anything, I would have liked more football song scenes. <laughs> like, where, where were Ball's football buddies? They would have been fun, silly supporting characters in a movie that really had no need or use for fun or silly anything. So it's probably good they weren't there. Start making mm. our own horror movie chants and just start throwing into these things as we're watching them. I'm trying to think of what our horror-themed like chants would be like. Like a pin here, a pin there, a pin like a pin all over the head. Oi, oi, oi! Was pinhead, pinhead, pinhead. Oh oi, no! Oi, oi. I mean, the Roy Kent one. I don't think I'm allowed in England anymore. Beetlejuice. I do got to give credit to the cinematographer because man, between this and Train Spotting. Nobody knows how to make the UK seem like just the worst fucking place to live like people from the UK. <laughs> like, man, they did such a good job making London just seem utterly inhospitable. Oh, my God. The, the, like, the fact that they tell them, okay, we're going to put you in a place, but you have to, you know, you have to live wherever. And they pack them into a taxi basically and drive them to the place and just drop them off and to the point that ball like when he goes to the barber is like hey where are we and the guy's like oh you're on high street and he's like in london and he's like yeah it's like it's so horrible that like these these people who have already been through so much they're just like allowed to be so disoriented and and unwelcome in this place I mean, it's, it's a good thing there's no elected leaders who would be as thought so thoughtless, callous and uncaring as to take fleeing refugees and just pack them into a motorized vehicle and then just ship them off to a completely to a unknown location they know nothing about with no resources on the ground prepared for them. But that would just be cartoonishly evil. So no governors named Greg Abbott would ever think to do that, right? Mm. 
Mm. Mm. Can't imagine. Twirl a mustache. Not to get too political, but uh, go fuck yourself straight to hell, Greg Abbott. Yeah. So when does the story take place? Oh, absolutely, yes. But um, when did the story like take place? Do you know? Um, so I know the movie came out in 2020. I mean, just a quick look. It says, I mean, I would guess sometime in the 2010s it's meant to take place. Yeah, I was looking at the Holocaust Museum's uh, write-up of genocide in South Sudan, and this says that um, since gaining independence in 2011, the new nation of South Sudan experienced civil war and mass atrocities, um, and between 2013 and 2018, over 400,000 people were killed as a result of the war. In March 2017, the UN determined that ethnic cleansing was occurring, and though the civil war has formally ended in 2020, there was an increase in both intercommunal and politically motivated conflicts. So very, very recent. Yes, this history. is definitely meant to be a present day uh, story. And it's just something that I feel like since 2011, like since independent, like getting independence, I don't remember hearing anything about. Yeah, I mean, how Sudan, you fucked know? is it that there's been a decade long civil war mm-hmm. that we know nothing about? What a damning indictment of us our culture and the news media. Mm. But especially us, because self-loathing just comes so naturally to me. Why why is that? You know, where the Jewish part. So uh Ben, you were talking about the uh cinematographer on this one, which we have have seen oh. them as the director of photography previously on Hard Candy, which is another very difficult movie to watch. Mm. They also Can we they also were the cinematographer for Outcast's Roses video, among other things. Hell yeah. Okay. Oh, that's one of my favorite Speaking music videos. Speaking of just standout filmmaking, I have to talk about the scene where it's ball eating so much sound effect on like focus on the clanking of the fork and it just zooms out and it's just him against like the like a, a chunk of the wall cut out and they're on the water and, and Rial disappears like how just uh creep tastic was that? And the orangey colors and the smoke. Yeah. Very almost stranger things with the colors. Along with the moment of her like crawling out the window into this classroom and then like the the switch of the classroom from being full of living people to being full of dead people. Both of those moments are just so insane. They're just so intense and so like they're at a point that like at first you don't really know what you're looking at and then it blows it up in a way that you can't not you can't not know what you're looking at. It's a lot. This movie is uh it really heaps it on you, doesn't it? it does. Absolutely. Good job, cinematographer but, Joe Willems. Oh, I mean great job. I mean the scene where uh Bali confronts the Apeth and like the candle turns into the fire and it's just them talking across shadows like and yet it's chilling her. Ooh, God, no. The scene that I could not fucking tear myself away from that just gave me all the chills was the dinner on the floor scene where she tells him the story of the ape from her village and then ends with her calling him a liar when he says he doesn't know what she's talking about. Like that scene. And oh my God, again, I just have to give such praise to Wunmi Masaku she is electric in that scene. 
Yeah. I, I mean, realized I was just like nodding and shaking my head in, in an audio medium. So, <laughs> I mean, again, I once again, I don't have snark. This is a very good movie with such heavy themes. Like the only thing that I could possibly like knock points off it for is that a lot of the plot and misdirects rely on, you know, Rial's false memories that she gave herself over the like within three months. And I don't even know if I'd knock it for that. That's I guess just like in that fucking anal retentive hitch me not uh, you know, cinema sins honest trailer kind of way of like it's a bit of a contrivance that the plot needs to work. That's true. But yeah. well, if if that's enough to you know dampen your enjoyment of this fucking haunting intelligent experience, then go fuck yourself. I guess <laughs> this movie's amazing. It won a lot of awards. Good, it deserved them. Not enough awards. No, it won best director and best performance by an actress from the British Independent Film Awards at the uh, British effects, Academy Film Awards. Design. It won Outstanding Debut by a Writer, Director, Producer, and was nominated for Best Actress in Outstanding British Film. First full-length film. Sorry, this was a debut? Yeah, this this is is Remy Week's debut, which, I mean, that's very exciting. Whoa! I mean, just think about what he can do, like, you know, in the future as a filmmaker. Like, if this is his debut film, holy shit. Wow. All right, y'all get to writing. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Good movie. Jeremy, Ben? Yes. You can do this, right? <laughs> Your debut film can be this good, right? I've got, I mean, I, I wrote the, I wrote an issue one to a horror script. We'll see if mm-hmm. I can do the rest. Yeah, I'm going to write a, a horror movie all about the uh, terrors of being a lower middle class white man in America. So it's what people are really longing for right now. I'm, I'm going to write a horror movie about the travails of being a mid-tier horror podcast host oh you think we're mid <laughs> i mean oh <laughs> look i think our quality is high but the numbers are with the numbers <laughs> we're, we're gold like, we're gold nobody we're gold star that. people but the masses don't understand how great we are that's that's the what the odds are not aware of us that we're that's, that it's, it's, <laughs> not that they don't like us it's, it's the just children they don't know who we exist I'm not out of touch. It's the children who are wrong. <laughs> His house is 100% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes. Again, who's going to be the fucking asshole that gives this a negative review? An asshole. Some that's audience who. members. Let's see. What's I, this audience? I mean, I'm it's, really it's surprised. There isn't, like, fucking, I'm really surprised even like the sun didn't give it like a bad review. Peter just, like, M. Peter M. says boring. made no sense. Peter M. This is the only thing Doom, that Peter, Peter M. M. has ever rated. Touch some fucking grass, Carol, Peter M. One and a half stars. This is not a horror movie. It's more of a social commentary. Carol also if, gave I Came By four as stars. As if there is our entire show. Is Carol gave, not Carol gave I Came By four stars. It has an audience score of 46%. Carol, question your taste. Carol voted for Brexit. <laughs> Abigail S., Gives it two stars. And here's what Abigail S. says. It was good at first, but then it kept getting harder and harder to understand. It also dragged on a lot. And I started watching it at 1.5 speed halfway through. 
Like, how did it get a hundred percent legit? The best movie ever will get like a six percent, but this gets. 100. What is she like, watching what? that she thinks Abigail, are the best movie ever made? Got a six percent. <laughs> Abigail has rated nothing else. This is the only thing that Abigail has. That's rated. racism right there. That's the racism <laughs> that, that jumping out. Abigail's a Gen Z I gotta kid say that at one point five speed. It, 1.5 are you fucking with me i gotta say i don't feel like this dragged at all this is one movie that was it's like an hour 30 an hour 33 and i absolutely felt like very well along this is a good movie i do not have bad things to say about this movie yeah, it's got. I Matt get that they're refugees with ptsd but they really could have built a really horror film ellie doesn't even I, sense. I I feel like once you admit to like oh, oh I watched this movie at one point five speed like your letterbox account should just be deleted. Oh, I'm a Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> well, now that we know what all of Rotten Tomatoes thinks about it, uh, it sounds like we would recommend watch this, right? Hell yeah! Hell I fucking yeah! Don't no, because it's beautiful. It's well acted. I think it was well paced. I think it, the themes were interesting. I think the topics were very interesting. But child endangerment is, like I said, my big trigger. Um, and I made it through. I made it through. But if that is a big trigger for you, then this may be one that you just want to hear someone else tell you about. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say, as with, so many things that we talk about on this show, mind the trigger warnings, but like it is an incredibly well-made movie. There's no wasted space in this movie. Everybody that's in it is great and it's it moves quickly and has a lot of interesting stuff to do and say in it. So like if it's a question of quality as to whether people should see it or not, they absolutely should. If, you know, it's a question of like, do you want to see war crimes and genocide and uh, children being endangered and, and or killed? Well, you know, maybe maybe keep that in mind. But as opposed to last week where, you know, we were talking about Master and that was like, nah, skip it. This is one that it's like, yeah, definitely. I mean, definitely we're I out. did. So, and sounds like I made the right call. I think so. Uh, I, I'm sorry for y'all uh, uh, missing last week's, but uh, my publisher sure likes scheduling a lot of deadlines during the holidays. Yeah, it's funny because so, you're not uh, even there. Yeah, but I'm back now. Speaking of being back, now that you are back, what do you want to recommend, Ben? <laughs> that was a smooth <laughs> transition. Speaking of being back, what do you want to recommend? <laughs> <laughs> so if you want a movie that... Mm, Maybe tackles themes a little less intelligently and a lot less sensitively, but does continue the general theme of house-based horror. Check out Poltergeist. Hmm. Hmm. You're going to recommend uh, House to go with his house? Very different movies, House and His House. Yes. I mean, of course, we need now the crossover, His House. Y'all are better than me because... We said his house and you started singing our house. But all I keep thinking about is Flo Rida. Welcome to my house. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Sorry about is that. Is that what you want to recommend? Alicia, cut this, cut this, cut this, cut this, cut this. <laughs> <laughs> is that what you want to recommend, Alicia? Flo Rida? 
No, I absolutely do <laughs> yes, not want to recommend Flowrider. We Flo always Rida. recommend Flowrider on this show. Although I will say that Jeremy and I were talking about how mu- how little we think about Flowrider for Flowrider to have so many hit songs. Like As a society, we don't think about Flowrider enough. But we don't think about Florida enough. Um, I would absolutely recommend that everyone read Beloved. Ooh, and that is that one is a child endangerment as well. And it is very heavy and it is very beautiful and it it, it is a lot. Um, but the other thing that I wanted to recommend that I haven't listened to a lot of yet, but it's um a podcast called Crossings, the Refugee Experience in America. It's really interesting, but again, it can be pretty heavy. Yeah. What would you like your recommendation to be, Jeremy? I was tempted to just recommend something fun because this movie is so heavy, but instead I'm going to recommend something just as heavy, which is uh, the film Under the Shadow, which has a lot in common with this movie. It takes place in uh, Tehran, just sort of like post-revolution and sort of this this war-torn Tehran that's being bombed and everything. And it's about a, a woman who is, uh, was previously training to be a doctor who post-revolution is sort of cooped up in her house with her, her kid, you know, having to wait for her husband to go out and make money and have a job. But simultaneously, like, the city is being bombed around them. And also she is being haunted by jinn that are also very, like, closely related to the same kind of idea of, like, ghosts of the past of you know your society sort of haunting you and and needing to be remembered but also you know doing horrible stuff it's a really good movie Uh, i believe it's also on netflix now that's where i saw it but yeah it's uh it all takes place in iran and it's really good recommend checking it out i'm sure we'll talk about it on here at some point nice um well we this has been a big fun heavy as fuck discussion today yeah absolutely (laughs) alicia if people want to have more heavy discussions with you where can they find you online uh they can find me at alicia whitley on twitter for however long that lasts where i mostly talk about school stuff now that i am a student so i don't talk as much about teachings well i guess it's still about teaching because i'm in school school to learn more about teacher education but yeah it's it's a very boring twitter account i don't know that you want to go there i'm sure it'll be i mean i know i just need to get better at saying pithy things i'm I'm gonna work that's my you just say them out loud to me resolution you You gotta put them on the internet where everybody can see how pithy you are more pith yeah yeah that's what twitter's there for pithy straight pithy thoughts. that's what we should say what are our 2023 resolutions and is more boundaries and more pith. That's a good resolution. Gonna get pithed off. Do you know what pith is? It's a helmet. That's the spongy white tissue lining the rind of an orange, lemon, or other citrus fruit. You How see this? You to listen to this podcast. Like, you no idea. hear about, you hear discussion about movies, and now you learn citrus facts. Shows a complete package. Welcome to the citrus oh, facts pith. corner. It's usually Emily's part of the show, but, you know, Alicia's filling in. It really is. Welcome to Citrus Facts. That's what we do here. This is usually Industrial Music Corner, but now it's Citrus Facts. No lemon facts. Sure, there's pithy industrial music. Yes. And just because nobody has said it this episode, Neon Genesis Evangelion. 
Um, oh, yeah. And Devil Man. Yeah, Emily will be back to say all those things next week. Uh, in the meantime, you can... Uh... Ben hasn't said JoJo's yet. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I did bring up the uh, spinoff with Rohan Kishibe. That's true. true. All right. Um, Jeremy, where can people find you online? Uh, well, they can find me on my Twitter and Instagram at jrome58 and on my website at jeremywhitley.com. You can uh, see everything that I write. And you're also going to make a TikTok for Progressively Horrified, right? Somebody is. That's what the kids are into these days. <laughs> I don't know what the kids are into these days. What about you, Ben? Where can people find you online? Oh, I was going to say, I think the kids are into Bakugan. I, I, I'm going to go Bakugan. <laughs> you can find me online on Twitter at Ben the Con, on Instagram at Ben Con Comics. And do you mind if I do a little, a little plug in away for stuff? Do it. Plug it. Is there anything we should pre-order? Uh, yes, there is something you should pre-order. My debut uh, novel, a middle grade adventure called L. Campbell Wins Their Weekend. It coming out from Scholastic October 17th in bookstores everywhere. So mark your calendar. It is available for pre-order now. Middle grades. Okay. Yes. You missed a word. So you said it is novel. A bunch you didn't of say seven... graphic novel. Is that, is that Yeah, you there? said you missed the word graphic. I thought. I did not. You this, wrote is, gra- this is prose. There what? Is the only art is on the cover. And then it's just like just words. Just fucking so many words. <laughs> it's just, oh, my God. Words. Jesus fuck, is it anything but words? It's not. It's just <laughs> I'm ex- I'm so excited to read it. Oh, I, I really hope you enjoy it. You know, it's about uh, a uh, spunky, non-binary seventh grader going on a real adventure of a day, hoping to find uh, the one person that can help them figure out how to stand up for themselves and their identity. I love it. Yeah, oh. so that is, again, L. Campbell wins their weekend out October 17th from Scholastic. You can pre-order it no, 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 now. And of course, the podcast is on Patreon at Progressively Horrified. Our website at progressivelyhorrified.transistor.fm and on Twitter at Prague Horror Pod. We would love to hear from you. And speaking of loving to hear from you, we would love it if you would rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening to it right now. Hit those five stars. Leave us a nice review. It'll help more people find us and help us to continue to grow. Thanks again for to you all for joining us, and thank you for Alicia for uh, stepping in for our third show today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, you know, usually I just get to listen to y'all talk and then yell at your dumb opinions from my safe space behind the computer screen. My opinions are pretty dumb. (laughs) Oh yeah, I forgot that I'm mad at you a little bit for like, bad hair is really that low on your rankings list? Like, there was some talk of putting no face Benny over bad hair? What? That's fair. I feel like you feel the existence of Vanessa Williams forgives a lot, but... I do. Indeed. I do indeed. All right. I'll let you finish the podcast. Go ahead. Well, thank you for that. And until next time, stay horrified.